1797, Father Juan Bautista Llorens had a signature honor. It fell to him to complete a project that is said to have been in the works for almost 15 years. That is, capping off construction of a new church at San Javier del Bac, just south of Tucson. The mission itself dates back all the way to Father Kino, who founded it in 1692. And though he helped lay the foundations for a church at the site in 1700, the building was never completed. So it fell to the Franciscans, who took over for the Jesuits, to erect the impressive structure, colloquially known today as the White Dove of the Desert. But the ability to complete such a church also indicates something else. By the turn of the 19th century, the Pimeria Alta had found a measure of peace and stability. In fact, the last couple decades of Spanish rule would be some of the best the settlers ever enjoyed, and laid the cultural foundations you will still find in places such as Tucson and Tubac. This pivot point, where the old problems of the frontier eased up while a new generation decided what it meant to live in Arizona, is something that begs to be talked about. And isn't that what we are all here for in the first place? So let's dive in. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you're listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 13, The End-slash-Beginning of an Era. Before we can dive into this bright, shiny new future, we have to deal with the remnants of the past. Remember from our last episode that Bernardo de Galvez, the recently appointed viceroy of New Spain, had implemented a new policy of peace by purchase, basically trading available, though admittedly shoddy, goods to have hostile tribes settle down and play nice. Unfortunately, Galvez did not live long after his policy was instituted. He died in 1786, shortly after it went into effect. His successor turned out to be a little more hard-nosed and declared in 1788 that only Apaches who willingly and voluntarily came to settle would be granted this right. Those who sued for peace after military action were to still be considered prisoners of war and deported. By 1790, it was common to transfer these capture Apaches to Havana, of all places, where they couldn't escape and definitely couldn't make it back home. Many who were deported died from tropical diseases, while the uh, lucky ones merely lived out the rest of their lives in labor camps. The late 1780s also saw a few more conflicts with the Apaches before things could settle down. And that brings us again to our old friend, Juan Bautista de Anza. In 1787, Anza stepped down as governor of New Mexico after a decade of service. There was some talk of making him governor of Texas, but finally it was decided to grant him the title of military commander for Sonora. When Anza took over his new post, the lay of the land looked a lot different than when he had served there in the 1770s. The disastrous presidio along the San Pedro River had since been abandoned, and those soldiers were now stationed at Santa Maria de Suamca along the Santa Cruz, just west of Nogales on the current Mexican side of the international border. It was the commander of this presidio, now labeled simply Santa Cruz, that Anza tapped to lead a punitive expedition against the Apaches. Specifically, a band of Chiricahua Apache who had abandoned their peace settlement at Bacoachi, and they had to be dealt with. In 1788, the commander tapped by Anza, Captain Manuel de Echegaray, 
put together a force of some 400 soldiers from neighboring Presidios. With the help of friendly Apache scouts, they tracked the renegade band as far north as Azuni Pueblo, where the force managed to kill 54 of them, take an additional 125 into custody, and persuaded the remaining 55 to settle peacefully. Echegaré was also able to recover numerous horses and mules stolen from the Spanish. Thanks to how critical his scouts had been, officials looked the other way when the Chiricahua settled at Bacoachi again. No need for that whole ship-them-off-to-Cuba death sentence this time. The fantastic news brought by Echegaré was counterbalanced by the death of Captain Pedro Romero, the commander at Tucson, at the hand of, you guessed it, other Apaches. Carrying news of his own successful campaign in June 1788, Romero was killed while en route to Arispe. Echegaré would later recover Romero's saber to have it forwarded to the captain's family. Now, I've read one account that says Anza was considered to take over for the deceased Romero. If that is true, that would bring everything around full circle, as Tucson's Presidio was simply Anza's old one at Tubac moved up the road. However, Anza had other things to concentrate on. You see, a couple years beforehand, Brigadier General Jacobo Ugarte y Loyola became Commandant General of the Interior Provinces. As part of his plans for his territory, Ugarte y Loyola wished to break new roads between Santa Fe and New Orleans, Sonora, and Monterey. So, in the summer of 1788, he tapped the most experienced person in the area for such a task, Ansa. Ansa threw himself into planning for this new mission, though it was becoming clear that he was no longer physically up for the job. His health had steadily deteriorated throughout 1788, and on October 1st, it was even proposed that he be transferred to Spain to retire. However, before that could happen, on December 20th, 1788, Juan Bautista de Anza the Younger passed away at Arispe at the age of 52. Anza has been with us so long now. I mean, I first mentioned his birth back in episode 8, and has been such a key player in the history of the Pima Rialta that I feel we should look back a bit. More than 30 years of his life was spent in the frontier presidios, first at Fronteras and then at Tubac. He had fought Seris, Apaches, Comanches, really any hostile tribe you could name. He spent a whole decade solely dedicated to keeping Tubac and its surrounding communities going in the face of constant Apache raids. His expedition to break a road to California has gone down as one of the great achievements of the Spanish colonial period, even if the road didn't stay open for too long. Finally, he was noted as being an able and trusted administrator, earning accolades from King Carlos III himself and from Qua, who initially didn't think much of him and actually wanted to have him sacked. Now, for a variety of reasons, his popularity would always suffer in New Mexico. In fact, on a few occasions, community leaders would march to Arispe to demand his recall. Most of that was due to him trying to implement unpopular orders coming down from the Commandant General that were rearranging the everyday life settlers in New Mexico had always known. But overall, if Spain wanted something done in the late 1700s, Anza was the guy to call upon. Heck, he had even helped expel the Jesuits, despite the personal cost. His passing really marked the end of an era. A year before his death, 
Ansa did learn one bit about the changing scene in the Pimaria Alta that I can't help but think would have made him happy. The re-establishment of the old Presidio at Tubac. As we touched on last week, Tubac had been all but abandoned by those of Spanish descent, but it was still deemed important enough to help defend settlements along the Santa Cruz. So, the old Presidio would be staffed by an 80-man company comprised entirely of Odom soldiers. These types of companies, consisting mainly of opatas and pimas and overseen by Spanish officers, were being fostered at various settlements in the wake of the peace-by-purchase policy. The company in question, the San Rafael de Buena Vista Company, had been formed in 1782 at Buena Vista, just like it says on the tin. The first commander was Pedro Villa Excusa, who had started at the ill-fated Presidio on the San Pedro River before moving to both Tumacacri and Tubac. So, he was no stranger to the area when the company was transferred to Tubac in 1787. However, Villa Excusa, who will eventually end his days as a colonel, was transferred away shortly after the move. His slot was then filled by a subordinate, Ensign Nicolás de la Herrán, who would shortly receive a promotion to lieutenant. Though they fought for Spain, the company did so in their own way. They fought mostly on foot with bows and arrows, light lances and shields, and maybe the occasional surplus musket. They also had no uniforms, mostly didn't speak Spanish, and rode into battle stripped to the waist. Enlistee signed up for a 10-year hitch and earned 137 pesos annually, which was less than half what a Spanish soldier was making at the time. Overall, the annual payroll for the company was 13,098 pesos, only two-thirds of what the 50-person garrison had cost in 1776. Still, the fighting men were fighting men, and the thought of having some protection at Tubac made it feel safe again for settlers to return. Iran was encouraged to stimulate settlement through a provision in the regulations of 1772 that allowed land grants on Presidio property. Grantees had a few requirements they were supposed to meet, including maintaining horses and weapons for militia duty, living on the land for at least four years, build a house within two years, plant fruit trees, and promise never to sell any land to the church. This last provision seems pretty provocative, but it goes in line with the views of Ansa, Galvez, and others about the failures of the mission system. The first person to take up the offer was Toribio de Otero, a 28-year-old whose sister had been married to the company's first commander, Villa Excusa. Otero and his descendants would become a huge part of Tubac's story, with the land from this original grant still being held by the family up until the 1940s. Historian John L. Kessel notes that there is some irony in the fact that as Apache warfare was winding down, the Pimaria Alta was now more protected than it had ever been. All of this contributed to a renewed energy in Tucson and Tubac and brought the area a measure of peace it had not known since the Spanish first set foot in the Pimaria Alta. But this was almost despite the constant vacillating tones of various Spanish officials. Secretary of the Indies Galvez had put the general command of the interior provinces back under the command of the Viceroy of New Spain in 1786. I'm sure that is just one huge coincidence that 1786 is also when Bernardo de Galvez, his nephew, became viceroy. 
This undercut a lot of the rationale for the general command, which was supposed to be autonomous to respond to unique conditions on the frontier. Furthermore, in 1787, the general command was divided into western and eastern sections. Finally, in 1792, King Carlos IV decided to reunify the general command and remove it again from viceregal authority. The only exception was California, which was split off from the interior provinces and turned over to New Spain for administration. Historian David J. Weber points out that this frequent rejiggering made continuity of policy impossible. It intensified bureaucratic infighting and lessened the effectiveness of military operations. But the cessation of hostilities also managed to stick because everyone, Spanish and native alike, had come to realize the same thing as Viceroy Galvez. A bad peace was preferable to a good war. Some soldiers even began to view the Apaches more favorably than they had in previous generations. In 1791, the new Commandant General, Pedro de Nava, issued new commands for pacifying Apaches, which were less cynical than Galvez's and less harsh than his successor. In Arizona and New Mexico, artisans, merchants, stock raisers, and miners enjoyed a newfound prosperity in the 1790s, helped along by the fact that they could, mostly, travel without the fear of being ambushed, and that Apaches weren't coming to raid their goods every five minutes. Places that had previously been cleared out by hostile natives, such as Aravaca and the San Pedro River Valley, now hosted some adventurous farmers and miners. In 1794, Captain Jose de Zuniga became commander of the Tucson Presidio. He's going to stick around for a bit, and we'll definitely have more to say about him. But for our purposes now, he's important because one of the first tasks he was saddled with was Ansa's old assignment of opening a road between New Mexico and Sonora. With Apache scouts and the diaries from former expeditions to guide him, Zuniga and the 150 men with him will succeed in making it to the Pueblo of Zuni in western New Mexico. Though this feat was orders of magnitude safer than it was just a decade earlier, it was still too long and difficult to maintain, and there were just enough hostile tribes out there to make it too dangerous. However, overall the population began to climb. A 1797 census of the Tucson Presidio records 395 individuals, with 102 of those being soldiers. There were also 21 civilian households, some founded by former Presidio soldiers. Some of these have last names that were formerly found at Tubac, such as Pacheco, Duran, and Ramirez. It's during this time in Tucson that we start to see the rise of several families that would be prominent in the area for generations and even centuries. First up is Mariano de Urrea, who briefly took command of the Presidio in 1794. He would marry a woman from Arispe named Gertrudis Elias Gonzalez. In 1797, they would have a son named José Cosme de Urrea. For those of you familiar with Mexican history, you know that José de Urrea is going to play a major part of the instability in Mexico following independence. And in case you are not familiar... Here's the Cliff Notes version. Urrea will join the Mexican army and fight against those darn Texas rebels in 1836 under the command of his friend and ally, Antonio López de Santa Ana. Urrea will protest the cessation of the war against Texas and also will turn on Santa Ana in the late 1830s, which results in him being thrown into prison. Eventually, he will even fight in the upcoming Mexican-American War, which I promise someday we'll talk about, before dying of cholera in 1849. 
Also found on the census records is Juan Antonio Oliva, son of the man tasked with moving the Presidio to Tucson in 1776. Also, Salvador Gallego, another progenitor of a prominent Tucson lineage. In the census, we find, too, the name of Jose Maria Sosa, who is listed as having one of the wealthiest households in the city. Sosa, who served at Tubac, is the originator of a legacy that extends to our own day. His descendants will be prominent across southern Arizona moving forward. So keep a watchful ear out for that particular surname as we go on. The census also brings to light another part of the dynamic that now existed between the Spanish and the natives. That is, captives. Since the establishment of peace by purchase, the number of captives taken from tribes not getting with the program had rapidly increased. Both Presidio commanders and priests were concerned of what to do with them and to make sure that they were raised properly as Christians. A 1798 census at Arispe showed 55 Apaches, mostly between the ages of 3 and 20, distributed among 25 Spanish families. In Tucson, meanwhile, tribes from along the Gila River would bring Quechin, Yavapai, and Apache captives to the fort to sell. A letter to Commandant General Nava around this time asked for enforcement on making sure these slave traders, let's call them what they were, were paid promptly so as to ensure that they couldn't just kill captives because selling them wasn't profitable anymore. Finally, something to keep in mind. The population of the Pimaria Alta definitely received a shot in the arm from the cessation of hostilities, but keep remembering that this is the frontier, in the heart of the Sonoran Desert, without air conditioning. It's still an incredibly hard place to live. Infant mortality, for example, was still fairly high, with the records from the church at Tumacacri showing that less than a third of all children made it past the age of two. Despite the opportunities now available, the overall non-Amerindian population of the Pimaria Alta is not going to surpass 1,100 before the end of Spanish rule. In 1804, Captain Zuniga would infamously describe the community of Tucson by saying, quote, We have no gold, silver, iron, lead, tin, quicksilver, copper mines, or marble quarries. End quote. In his opinion, the community desperately needed such craftsmen as a leather tanner, tailor, shoemaker, and a saddle maker. He also felt there was an opportunity to cultivate grapes that was not being acted upon. That same report, ordered by King Carlos IV to get a bead on how his frontier settlements were doing, does provide some indicators of prosperity. There were people engaging in pack trains and others were making soap. Something of a weaving industry had also cropped up, thanks to 5,000 sheep being grazed at Tubac. The two communities of Tucson and Tubac were also listed as harvesting hundreds of bushels of corn, wheat, beans, and other vegetables. And for all you libertarian utopists out there, they also reported that no one was paying any sales or personal taxes. But this is mainly because goods were bought directly from the Presidio store, so sorry libertarian utopists. Despite this, Zuniga and the new commander in Tubac, Manuel de Leon, say they were completely dependent on the general command capital at Arispe through which all goods came. Each also fails to mention mining activities in their jurisdictions, though some were undoubtedly happening and would ramp up moving into the 1810s. 
Zuniga would also describe Tucson as a collection of flat-roofed adobe houses alongside a patchwork of fields, only adding that, quote, the only public work here that is truly worthy of this report is the church at San Javier del Bac. If you have never seen the white dove of the desert, you are missing out. I've thrown a picture up on the website, azhistorypodcast.com, to show you a distant view of it. I apologize in advance that you also have to see me in that photo as well. Historian Thomas Sheridan describes it as, quote, a Baroque glory. In 1916, McClintock wrote, quote, Without doubt, it is the most beautiful church structure of the Southwest, end quote. We actually don't have a solid accounting of when the walls started going up, but tradition says it began in 1783 under the direction of Friar Juan Bautista Belderain. The structure itself is said to have been built on top of another church constructed in the mid-1750s. The cost is said to have been around 30,000 pesos, with a wealthy Spaniard named Antonio Erroros having loaned 7,000 pesos for its construction. Odom labor was used for the construction, though for some reason, one of the two towers on it was never completed. The beautiful white stucco exterior positively gleams in the desert sun, making it noticeable for miles around. Seriously, go Google some photos of the interior and exterior and it will blow you away. Zuniga also remarked that all the other missions should really be called chapels, but, quote, San Javier del Bac is truly a church, end quote. Today, the church is still run by the Franciscan Order to provide religious services for the Tohono O'odham, and is both a National Historic Landmark and listed on the National Register of Historic Places. As I said at the top of today's episode, Father Llorenz formerly dedicated the church in 1797. And with the labor pool now freed up a bit, the Odom workforce could also now concentrate on some other public works projects. Though passed over by Zuniga in his report about the state of Tucson, Llorenz turned his attention to what was now known as El Pueblocito, or the Little Village. This is the same spot, across the Santa Cruz from the Presidio, where Anza had directed the inhabitants to build the original fortifications to hold off the Apaches, and where Garces had started building the church. The church was starting to deteriorate by 1797, so some of the work was spent renovating and shoring up that structure. The revived church would actually last until the close of the 19th century, which isn't too shabby. Tradition also says that workers then turned their attention to crafting a two-story structure that either served as a convent or a school. Apparently, Apaches living in the area contributed to its construction. Unfortunately, we have no more information about this particular project, and Zuniga's 1804 report passes over it entirely. I would like to also add here another little anecdote that tells much about the conditions in the area at the time, and the tensions that existed between the Spanish and their new allies, and among the Spanish themselves. In 1796, water disputes began to arise in the Tucson area. A party of Tohono O'odham living northwest of the Presidio site had agreed to move to an abandoned Acamel O'odham site that sat at the base of Tucson's Sentinel Peak. However, they soon found that those at the Presidio were unwilling to share their water with the newcomers, meaning that most of the advantages of the move were pretty much nullified. 
and just to kick someone when they are down, Spanish livestock had gotten into and destroyed most of the few crops they were able to grow. Father Uren stepped in here to help settle the dispute and provide food and clothing for the Odom. Requests for extra help for these people eventually reached Commandant General Nava himself, but he was informed that by this point most of the vital questions had been settled. Apparently some agreement for water rights had been reached, and that no further action was required. This incident helps demonstrate that the peace during this time was marred somewhat by an ongoing dispute between the soldiers and the Franciscans. This dispute would occasionally bubble to the surface as the 18th century drew to a close. As early as 1794, Nava submitted a recommendation up the chain that the churches in Sonora should be secularized and the natives more fully incorporated into the colonial system. This obviously didn't sit well with the friars at all, and from then on they would always eye Nava with suspicion. A few years later, Nava wrote a pointed letter to the Bishop of Sonora. This letter called for priests to adhere to a royal order that everyone traveling between fortified towns were to be armed in case of attack. You can probably imagine how telling priests, ostensibly servants of the Prince of Peace, to carry weapons went over. In this letter, he also fired a few more shots across the Franciscans' bow, such as telling them they could no longer charge fees for burials or administering sacraments, and, oh, by the way, you need to start paying the natives for the labor they are doing on your missions. Finally, this letter also references a royal order saying the missions could not offer sanctuary to army deserters and revolutionaries. I honestly don't have a record of how all this was received, but I think we can all imagine it did not go over well. On the other side, and along the same lines, in 1799, a wave of unrest washed over Sonora, with uprisings among both the Apaches and the Seres. The parish priest at Pitic, today the Mexican city of Hermosillo, actually accused Nava of having incited the uprising in order to make everyone more dependent on soldiers and deny the Franciscans more help to spread their influence up to the Gila River. But another tension was also building inside the interior provinces. That great boogeyman, the British, were back in everyone's nightmares. A rumor was circulating that the British were angry at Spain for allying itself with France during the various wars of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic era, and was primed to invade northern Mexico. This was not helped any by a Portuguese sailor who claimed to have escaped from a British vessel and testified at Pitic that the English were planning to sail up the Gulf of California, set up a base, and ally with Amerindians to conquer all of Sonora. While that would make for a fascinating alternate history, we of course know none of that is going to happen. The turn of the century and the first couple decades of the 1800s are something of a lost period when it comes to most histories of the state. Some historians, in a frantic rush to finally get to the Americans, gloss over it entirely. This is something we're going to run into now and over the next couple weeks, but here are a few tidbits. In 1801, the Presidio at Tucson began to give out land grants similar to the ones given to Otero down in Tubac. The first grant was to a man named Reyes Pacheco, a civilian settler of the area. Pacheco is also notable in that he was one of the few survivors of the Yuma Massacre some 20 years beforehand. 
In 1803, Father Narciso Gutierrez, stationed at Tubac, began construction of a new church for Tumacacri to replace the crumbling edifice built by the Jesuits in 1757. Unfortunately, unlike San Javier del Bac, there were no wealthy backers to ensure the success of the project. This church is going to languish for years, and Father Gutierrez will die before its completion. But speaking of Tumacacri, with Gutierrez's blessing, the natives of the area sent a delegation to Arispe in 1806 to petition for land grants of their own to the area they had been living on for generations now. The local governor was open to the idea, and by April 1807, they were granted title to a strip of land starting just south of Tubac and following the Santa Cruz down to the current international border. The grant had the same provisions as others, mainly that the land had to be cultivated and inhabited. Should it be left vacant for a certain amount of time, then the grant itself would be null and void. Now, this is a little down the road, but in 1812, another grant would be given to Agustin Ortiz of Tucson at the site of Aravaca, which would once again bring in settlers after the community's abandonment following the 1751 Pima Revolt. While these land grants were unfolding, another project to keep pushing Spanish influence north was stalling. The Franciscans still had a vision of expanding the mission system all the way to the Gila River, promising the Commandant General that the natives there were ripe for conversion, and not, in the words of one father visitor, quote, like those heathens who barely have the use of reason, end quote. However, the general command was short on cash, so it wouldn't invest in such an endeavor. And, in the words of historian John L. Kessel, quote, no quino, ansa, or gosses stood ready to sacrifice himself, end quote. Thus, the frontier would not go beyond Tucson during the remaining years of Spanish occupation. And those years are now numbered. So join me next week when the Pimorea Alta, New Spain, and really the whole empire will be rocked by news coming out of Spain that the French, not the British, had invaded the home peninsula and deposed the king. And while still reeling from this news, suddenly a cry will go out to form some absurd new thing that people down in New Spain were calling Mexico. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.